I'm going to be sharing with you this morning. I want to be talking to you about one of the most beautiful stories in Luke's gospel, one of the most brilliantly described stories that um, Luke shares with us. And it's the story about the disciples on the Emmaus Road. But before we go any further, I just feel like I need to introduce myself. So my name's John. I'm married to Emma, um, who you'll have seen a few weeks ago, stood here. Um, and we've got two kids, Livy and Asaph, and um, I'm part of the staff team here at Vine Life. Um, and I, uh, one of the things that really fascinate, fascinates me um, is in the Bible, when we meet the resurrected Jesus. So we're in this period of, of Eastertide, if you want to give it a name, um, in the traditional church, Eastertide. That's this period between Easter Sunday, when Jesus is resurrected from the dead, um, and the ascension, when he disappears off up into the clouds, and the disciples are yet again stood wondering what to do. Um, so we're, yeah, we're in this window. In fact, it, today is Easter Sunday in the Greek Orthodox Church, um, which may or may not be why Sam's not here this morning. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but uh, we're, in this, we're in this period between Easter and Pentecost. Um, and I think whenever we meet the resurrected Jesus, there's always something a bit, a bit different, a bit mysterious about him. Like he's not quite the same. He's not quite recognisable from the man that the disciples had spent three years, literally every day for three years, living alongside. Um, and so the story we're going to look at today, it starts on the Emmaus Road and it ends with Jesus breaking the bread. Um, so again, just to remind you, we're going to be taking bread and wine together this morning. So if you haven't got those ready, pause the video now, run off to the kitchen, grab those things, whatever you've got. It might not be wine, it might be juice. Um, go and grab those things and we'll take communion together um, as part of our time together this morning. Okay, but between now and then, we're going to walk this Emmaus Road uh, together. And we're going to see how Jesus wants to meet us along the way. So this story is found in Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 35. The words are going to be on the screen just beside me here. Um, this story is also in Mark's Gospel in chapter 16, but it takes up about two verses and there's no detail. So we're not going to use that one. We're going to use the one from Luke. Um, so we're going to walk through it in a few steps. Um, I'll talk about it as we go. We're going to jump in at verse 13, which says this. Now, on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. So on the same day, that's Easter Sunday. And Luke has just been describing um, how the women and Peter had gone to the tomb. They found it empty. The women had met some angels who told them that Jesus wasn't there, that he was alive. But no one's met him yet. Everyone's a bit confused. Um, no one's sure what to make of this empty tomb. And basically, everyone's a bit confused. So two of them, these two disciples, um, two of the people that have been with Jesus, um, they're out on the road. And we find out in a few verses time that one of these is called Cleopas. Um, so we know it's not one of the kind of the, the main 11 disciples that's left over after Judas has done his thing. Um, but the, the other one's left unnamed in this account. And I, for one, think that's quite interesting. Um, you'd think that if Luke knows one name in Cleopas, he'd probably know the other name, right? Um, but so why would Luke do that? Why would he leave this other disciple unnamed? Well, I think there's an opportunity for us this morning to imagine ourselves into the story, to step into the shoes or the sandals of that unnamed disciple. To imagine ourselves walking along this dusty, dirty road out of Jerusalem. To imagine ourselves walking away from the scene of a huge, crushing disappointment. 
as we discover, they put huge hopes in this Jesus of Nazareth. They thought he might be the Messiah. They thought they might be the one they'd been waiting for, that all of Israel had been waiting for. And where were they walking to? They're walking to this place called Emmaus. Um, and what's so special about Emmaus? You know, for most of us, we've heard from Emmaus from this story, perhaps if we've been around the church any length of time. But for early readers of Luke's gospel, the name Emmaus, the place of Emmaus, would have had a much bigger significance. You see, Emmaus was the scene of a famous military victory a couple of hundred years earlier. And thanks to a guy called Judah Maccabee, um, he was also called Judah the Hammer, so you get an idea of what kind of guy he was, if he's called the hammer. He defeated the occupying Greek uh, Seleucid army um, who had been encamped there with much fewer men. It had been a bloody battle um, and it paved the way for victory uh, and autonomy for the Jewish nation. And for the first time in centuries, they restored worship to the temple. Um, this was known as the Maccabean Re- Revolt and it led to what's called the Hasmonean Dynasty uh, when the Jews ruled Judea, um, which lasted until the Romans showed up. Uh, You can read all about the the Maccabees in the book or the books of Maccabees, which you can find uh, in these ancient writings that we call the Apocrypha. Now, I was a good church kid when I was little. I went to a Baptist church, so I always thought the Apocrypha was some kind of magical spell book or something. It's nothing that mysterious. It's a book of ancient writings that were from around the time of the centuries just before Jesus that give us an insight into what life was like in that second temple period, what religious thought was happening around the time as a first century Jew, what are the kind of things that people are talking about, what are they thinking about in that second temple period, the time that Jesus was born into. Um, So that's a lovely little history lesson, Um, but what's the point here? so here's the thing, Jesus wasn't the first person to stake a claim to be a Messiah. Um, he wasn't the first one that people said, look, this is the guy we've been waiting for. Israel had been carrying this promise for centuries that there was going to be someone come in who would redeem Israel. This was what we hear these two travelling companions discussing. You know, most Israelites had an idea of what they wanted their Messiah to look like. They were hoping for a kind of warrior, priest, king type figure. Maybe someone a bit like David who would, who would kick some Roman backside, who would take them out, who would ride into town on a war horse, but not a donkey. Someone a bit more like Judah the Hammer. So you've got these two Israelites walking away from Jerusalem, away from the disappointment of this failed Messiah from Nazareth. So he'd preach something different to all those other would-be messiahs. These countercultural ideas of enemy love and greatness through service, and who backed it up with signs and wonders, healings and miracles. But he turned out to be just another flop. Even he couldn't seem to save himself, as he held to this message of non violence long enough for it to eventually kill him, as he refused to fight back against those who threatened his life. You know, there'd been a glimmer of hope for them, maybe that Monday in the temple when Jesus had turned over the tables, they're thinking this is more like it. Maybe they even held hope on that Thursday evening that despite being under arrest by the religious authorities, Jesus would somehow break his shackles like Samson come again, grab a sword, march into the Roman garrison that overlooked the temple and spill some Roman blood. But no, <laughs> Friday came and with it, the crucifixion of their teacher. Maybe one last fragile hope of a miracle. 
But once he was dead and buried in the tomb, that was it. Because as everybody knows, dead people don't come back to life, do they? So they returned to the site of this previous Messiah that had done things the way things should have been done, right? With a sword. Turning their backs on the man who preached peace and told you to pray for those who persecuted you. They headed for the place that offered hope via a more violent kind of insurgence. Because that's what had worked before, right? And maybe that's where you find yourself this morning. Maybe disappointment has turned you back towards an old way. An old way of doing things, of of self-medicating, of self-soothing, with things that might provide a temporary distraction, but ultimately fall short of fixing anything. But I've got some good news for you this morning. Jesus wants to meet you on the road. So let's jump back into the text in verse 15. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognising him. See, Jesus shows up and they don't recognise him. This is what's fascinating. I don't think it's just because they're a bit bad at eye contact. Hello, fellow introverts. Um, There's something a bit new and mysterious about the resurrected Jesus. You know, they're not the only two that have trouble recognising him at first. You know, think about Mary, thinking he's the gardener in the garden. Um, There's got to be something about Jesus that isn't the same as before. After all, he's just had this descent into the grave of being swallowed up by death, but destroying it from the inside and rising again. Like his resurrected body was still his body, but it was changed forever. You know, it reminds me a bit of when Gandalf comes back in Lord of the Rings. His friends think he's dead. He's descended all the way down. They don't recognise him at first, but eventually they do. You know, Jesus' friends are having trouble recognising him. And in verse 17, he says to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still looking sad. I love when Jesus asks questions. It's almost as if like, he doesn't, he doesn't need to know the answer to this question. He never asks questions for his benefit. He always asks questions for our benefit. Verse 18, then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place in these days? He asked them, what things? Again, plain dumb Jesus. They replied, the things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to, it, to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped, we had hoped, that he was the one to redeem Israel or to set Israel free. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were there with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Like you, can, you can hear the pain and the disappointment in their account. You can feel their sadness. They're trying to make sense of something crazy that's just happened like we had this hope he was mighty indeed and in word but it's all gone wrong he he was dead and he's buried and kind of to make things worse some of our friends are telling us the tomb's empty and they've seen angels but we don't know what to make of it all so jesus puts his point across in verse 25 then he said to them 
oh, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all, the, all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them things about himself in all the scriptures. Now, it seems to me that Jesus has never been to a seminar on giving feedback. Um, in the message translation, he even calls them thick-headed. <laughs> like it's not super encouraging, Jesus. Come on, you can't open up feedback that way. But bluntness aside, he takes the time to explain the big picture, to explain the whole story. And what I kind of find encouraging here is that these guys have been with Jesus all along. They're some of his closest friends. They might not be among the 12 or the 11, as it is now, but we get the impression that they've been around a while. And there's even some conjecture, some tradition, that maybe uh, Cleopas might have even been Jesus' uncle. Um, but that's mildly spurious in this case. Either way, these guys had spent time with Jesus. They'd heard his teaching. They'd seen his miracles. But somehow they just didn't get it. And I find, kind of find that encouraging because it's possible to be with Jesus and still not get it. It's possible for the disciples to be thoroughly confused that Jesus had to be crucified. It's possible that we can do all the right things. We can be in all the right places to be in the very presence of God himself. And still sometimes our hearts and minds haven't caught up with what he's actually doing. So when you don't understand, you're in good company. <laughs> but Jesus goes on to explain everything, starting with Moses by which he means the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, which tradition says Moses wrote, and then the prophets, most likely drawing on the writings of Isaiah, who's quoted throughout the New Testament. And he says, look, guys, this was what it was saying all along. Don't you see? And again, this is personal opinion here. I think Jesus is maybe being a little bit harsh. Uh, literally no one in Israel had managed to read these scriptures and they've been doing it for centuries. No one had managed to read the law and the prophets and come up with the idea of the Messiah being born of a virgin, of being handed over to the occupying forces, of bearing the weight of sin upon his shoulders and dying on a cross, of dying a humiliating death and then somehow being resurrected three days later. This was just not how anyone was reading the scriptures. You know, it's a bit like watching the movie, The Sixth Sense and claiming that you knew that Bruce Willis was dead all along. And I'm sorry if I ruined a film from 1999 for you, but you've had 22 years, so you'll be all right. And so, but no one, no matter what they say, watched that film the first time and was sat there thinking, yep, he's dead, he's definitely dead, Bruce is dead. No, but if you rewatch the film now, the clues are there. Knowing what we know, it changes what we look back on and it becomes so obvious. And so it is with the Old Testament. The Hebrew scriptures that Jesus um, was talking about, the, the scriptures that Christians hold as God's word to us, the law and the prophets that he was on about. And when you know Jesus, it begins to make sense. Promises of one who would crush the serpent's head, upon whom the Lord would lay all our iniquity, one from the house of David whose throne would last forever. It's Jesus. And let me say this, Jesus absolutely has to be our tour guide when we read the Old Testament. As Christians, we can't make sense of the Old Testament without Jesus. He's there. He's sometimes a bit hidden in the pages, but he's there all right. He's there in creation. 
He's there visiting Abraham. He's there wrestling Jacob. He's there in the burning bush. He's there in the pillar of fire leading the Israelites through the desert. If we take Jesus as our tour guide, he'll show us this whole thing has been leading up to his arrival and the establishment of his kingdom. As the guys from the Bible Project like to put it, the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. Or even better, as the Jesus Storybook Bible likes to say, every story whispers his name. And having met Jesus, we can't ignore who he is and what he's like, knowing that he is the perfect image of the Father. He is what God is like. We can't simply ignore him and go and read the Old Testament on our own terms. We have to read it through the lens of Jesus. And that's what he did and that's what we need to do. So Cleopas and his walking buddy, they get this incredible Bible study. They get the key that unlocks this whole thing for us. It's like nothing they've ever heard before. And then at this point in the story, Jesus appears to be ready to head off in his own direction. Back in verse 28, it says, As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it's almost evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. So they invited him in. Whether it was compassion because it was getting dark and the road was not a safe place to be at night, or maybe it's just because they wanted to keep the conversation going, they invited him in. And friends, Jesus may show up and appear to us. He may even blow our minds with some revelation from scripture, but he still waits to be invited in. He's not going to stick around unless he's welcome. Remember, he sent his disciples out and he told them, anywhere you're not welcome, shake the dust off your feet and move on. He waits to be invited in. You know, and that's what he's still saying to us today. Revelation 3 verse 20 says, Listen, I'm standing at the door knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come into you and eat with you and you with me. Jesus wants to come in to sit at the table with us and eat with us. And I think this is when something really spectacular happens. Verse 31, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened. They recognised him and he vanished from their sight. So Jesus reveals himself in the breaking of bread. And this is a deliberate callback to a couple of chapters earlier by Luke. Even though he only refers to the breaking of the bread, and he does it again in verse 35, it's a reference to the whole act of communion. You know, in the early church, Luke and others hadn't developed this nice shorthand of talking about communion as bread and wine, or the Eucharist, or the Lord's Supper, or one of those other snappy titles we give this thing. Um, he's, he's using part of the act to refer to the whole of the thing. And it's in the act of communion that their eyes are opened to who Jesus is. There's something that happens as he breaks the bread that reveals to them who he really is. And as we take the bread and the wine together this morning, I truly believe something gets to happen. Something that's more than just a symbol, it's more than just remembering. You know, we talk about communion as a sacrament, a means of grace, that in the act, God is present with us and imparts his goodness to us. 
You know, it's not a magic spell or a conjuring trick. It's not something we twist God's arm with, but it is powerful and it's more than just the sum of its parts. It's mysterious and it's wonderful, you know, which is why some parts of the church end up holding some interesting views about it and how it works. But for us here today, it's more than just bread and wine. It's an act in which Jesus is present with us and reveals himself to us. So just to finish off this story then, before we come to the table together. Verse 32, they said to each other, were, our hearts, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? I love that. We're not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us. That same hour, they got up and returned to Jerusalem and they found the 11 and their companions gathered together. They were saying, the Lord has risen indeed and he has appeared to Simon. And they told what happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. You know, this experience had an effect on them. By the sounds of it, they weren't planning on going back to Jerusalem anytime soon. But that same hour, even though it was late, even though it was getting dark, they took the risk, they got up. You know, the message translation says they didn't waste a minute. They went straight back to Jerusalem and told their friends. And I love that phrase again at the end. He had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. So I want to give us an opportunity this morning to meet Jesus on the road in our disappointment in our walking away from what we hoped might happen for us to invite him in and for Jesus to reveal himself to us as we break bread um, my friend Simon's just going to play some general piano and pads for us um, I always find that a bit of music just helps me concentrate I don't know about anyone else but um I get to call the shots on this, so I find it helpful. So we're going to do it. Um, and we're going to have a little bit of what uh, we're calling Game Changers, our, an adventure time. We're going to invite Jesus to come and meet us, to speak into our hearts and into our minds as we imagine ourselves in this story. You know, Christians have been doing this with Scripture for two millennia and, Jesus, and, Ju- and the Jews were doing it for centuries before that. So we're going to jump into that rich tradition this morning. And as I said before, we know the name of one of these disciples, Cleopas. But Luke leaves this blank space for us of the unnamed traveller. And this morning, I want to invite you to step into those shoes. So take a moment to get comfortable, maybe sitting, maybe standing, maybe lying down, however you feel at home and begin to feel, (laughs) however you feel at home and begin to picture yourself walking on that road. And Jesus, we invite you to come and meet us on the road of our disappointment as we walk away from what we thought you were doing, as we walk away from what we'd hoped for, and maybe even for some of us as we walk back towards an old way of doing things. Would you come and meet us on the road Would you come and meet us on the road? Now, if Jesus was walking alongside you, what would you say to him?
How would you explain to him what's going on in your heart right now? How would you express your disappointment to him? How would you share your burden with him? So take a moment to tell him, as if he's just right there next to you. Not just tell him, but to give him your disappointment. Give him your heartbreak. Give him your despair. You might find it helpful to picture it as a weight that you're holding. Even to allow yourself to feel the weight of that disappointment. Imagine holding that weight in your hands and hand it over to him. Hand it over to him. Picture Jesus taking that weight from you. And listen to what he says. Does he offer you a new perspective? Does he offer you hope? Take a moment to listen. Take a moment to listen. moment to listen we listen to you Jesus we're not in a hurry then imagine for a moment that you're stood at the door together you're going to invite Jesus in to sit down with you I really hope the answer is yes you can show him where to sit as we prepare to take communion. And these are the words that Luke uses to describe the Lord's Supper, where Jesus is sat with his disciples at the table on the night he's about to be betrayed and arrested. It says, then he took the loaf of bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he did the same with the cup after supper, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So as we sit with Jesus, recalling that meal a few days before, suddenly recognising who he is, suddenly realising that this burning within our hearts was because he was with us. So let's take bread and wine, remembering who he is, remembering what he's done and allowing ourselves to be aware that he is with us. And Jesus, we invite you to reveal yourself again to us this morning. We believe that you're with us. We believe that you want to address our disappointment. We believe that you want to walk down the road with us. We believe that you want to sit at the table with us and make yourself known. So take a moment to allow Jesus to do that with you this morning. We're gonna sing again shortly. 
We'll just allow some space before we do that, just for you and Jesus to talk, to rest and to be together.